when the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning and welcome to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Have a great show lined up on cybersecurity news to protect yourself, your family, and what you need to know about current events. You can find us online at cybersecuritytodayradio.com. Connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at Cybersec Radio, my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, and email the show at Radio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N. B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K radio at gmail.com broadcasting from AM 820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast as well as AM 1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando and you can also find us uh, with your various uh, podcasting software uh, in the iTunes store and wherever you happen to get podcasts so great show lined up uh, and we'll just dive right into it a lot of news this week Uh, Continuing on the theme of uh, election hacking or election-related hacking uh, and concerns about the integrity of our elections, Uh, this upcoming week, June 20th, there's a special election in Georgia in the 6th Congressional District. There was concerns raised by the federal government that uh, the Georgia election authorities might not necessarily be able to maintain the security of their elections there. That's a high-stakes race uh, because the previous congressman was appointed to a uh, post within the federal government with the Trump administration, so there's a special election to uh, fill his spot, so high-stakes ta- high partisan election there. Uh, but some concerns were raised. If you may recall, uh, earlier uh, in the year, the state of Georgia expressed some aggravation at the federal government, specifically at the Department of, Department of Homeland Security, uh, that they saw some uh, scanning or uh, what they called intrusion attempts on uh, Georgia uh, Georgia's election system. So uh, certainly that's been uh, an epicenter of some concerns there uh, on elections. It provides us kind of a good news hook to what uh, I wanted to talk about, at least a little bit. Uh, This past week, you saw some stories, kind of splashy headlines that uh, related to a uh, defense contractor, somebody who worked from the NSA, uh, reality winning, uh, a report from the NSA that there was attempts by the Russians to hack into various uh, state election authorities and some vendors that... uh, dealt with software and hardware for our various elections. And some of the stories generating from this, right, one said uh, Russians attempted to influence election data in 39 states. Uh, this is probably one of the cases where the media uh, doesn't get it wrong, sensationalizes a little bit. Uh, uh, I know, at least in the state of Illinois, some of the uh, intrusion attempts that I saw there, I couldn't really discern whether they were Russian uh, intelligence or just commodity cybercrime. But that system in Illinois was just online voter uh, registration, right? Independent of anything involved with tallying of elections. Uh, But that said, right, there's attacks going on all the time. uh, And just because there are attacks does not mean there are intrusions. So when you say 39 states, uh, you know, have had attempts. 
that just means that literally that there were attempts made uh, that there were not necessarily any indication uh, that there was any success, no evidence that any votes were tampered with. And uh, there's a lot of hanging on this uh, this storyline that somehow things might have potentially been manipulated, which, uh, right, in the absence of evidence, I don't know how you really claim that. But a lot of people are holding on to that uh, more for political reasons uh, than anything else, right? And if there is no evidence of a crime, uh, myself as an investor, Investigator and an intelligence analyst, right? You know that that's where it ends. You know, we may look for evidence, we may look for tampering. If we don't find anything, we move on. We don't keep talking about it. That doesn't mean there aren't real concerns with electronic elections uh, and things of that sort. Uh, but certainly, we don't need to uh, continue to beat a dead horse seven, eight months uh, after the election. So, when you saw articles this past week. You know, saying 39 states uh, have had their uh, uh, electronic systems uh, hacked, right? No real evidence of breach in many cases, and sometimes uh, the results are relatively minor. Uh, most states actually keep their tallying systems and reporting systems uh, separate from their Internet systems, right? You know, you go into your county clerk's office or your election authority's office. There may be somebody there on Facebook. That computer is not necessarily the one that's involved with uh, tallying the elections. So if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. Continuing on that, uh, that thought about elections, there was another story, again, expressing more concerns, right? Is there a way to tell if somebody has manipulated election results, uh, if there was a hacker that got in? I think the important thing to realize that uh, dealing with election security. And I know around this time last year, I was talking to the federal government uh, saying, OK, you know what? You know, let's just not even deal with this as a contractor, uh, a money making opportunity. We'll just put together people that will help secure our elections because the stakes are too high. And, and where we ended up was there are 8000 independent election authorities. That means there's 8,000 different agencies who can make, generally speaking, a lot of their own decisions, what voting equipment they use, how they conduct their elections, how they tally, so on and so forth. Just dealing with the logistics of securing that was an immense undertaking. The flip side of that same coin is, if you wanted to manipulate election results in the United States, you couldn't just hack into the Federal Election Commission. They have no role in counting the votes. You couldn't hack into the state board uh, of elections in any of the states. They don't do the counting. It's these independent election authorities that you'd have to break into. All 8,000 of them, or not necessarily 8,000 of them, but each of them individually and manipulate them on a case-by-case basis, knowing that each different one may use different equipment, different methods. Some of it are pure offline. There are parts in this country that are still counting votes on paper. I know in my county, we have these optical readers, basically scantrons. Uh, those of you who remember the standardized testing you did in high school, you basically fill in a bubble. The machine reads your votes. Right? So the tallying is done electronic, but there is still a paper, a piece of paper that's in the ballot reader. All the paper is accounted for. You have Republican and Democratic election judges, and in places where they're third parties, you'll have those election judges, too. Uh, and in my county, the county clerk who's responsible for the elections takes 2% of the machines, just a random sampling. I'm going to take a voting machine from this precinct and this precinct, and then they will count those by hand. 
in the idea is that if somebody were able to manipulate the machines, they would be off in all of the machines because it would be very difficult to manipulate a very specific machine, certainly from the other the other side of the world, right? Somebody local could do something, but that's why you have county sheriffs uh, guarding those machines and so on. But talking about pure electronics, right, there is an after-the-fact audit. If things were truly out of the ordinary, right, they'd be detected. And one point I make to students I teach in security is you'll often hear, you know, there's two types of people, you know, people who know they've been hacked and people who don't yet know they've been hacked. The best we can do is making these kind of things detectable, right, and crafting systems that somebody may go through all of the hoops necessary to manipulate something, but will still catch it after the fact. So these audits that happen after the election, right, would catch that, and those audits came and went with no no signs of manipulation. So some sensationalized uh, things you've been hearing this past week uh, in the news media about elections, certainly there are things we need to be concerned about, but we don't need to exaggerate the threats. There's more than just election hacking and cybersecurity news this week. A lot of talk about North Korea, what they've been doing for almost the last 10 years, and some new security threats to our power grid. So stay tuned, and we'll talk more about what you can do to protect your family, your privacy, and uh, your children's cybersecurity right after this break. So stay tuned for more. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanak. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanek will be right back. And now, focus on government. My idea of a perfect government is... One guy who sits in a small room at a desk, and the only thing he's allowed to decide is who to nuke. Government is the problem. Cybersecurity. There's a new virus in the database. What's happening? It's replicating, eating up memory. Uh, what do I do? Type cookie, you idiot. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek. Uh, joining us today on our government feature is Chris Bing from CyberScoop, cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. Uh, had some uh, interesting big news this week uh, about an NSA contractor who leaked classified information about uh, attempts of Russians to attack our election authorities and voting machines. Uh, and a lot of interesting aspects of this story. Uh, I first heard about it getting on a plane on my way to London to talk about election hacking. And by the time I landed, she'd been arrested. And, uh, you know, that's kind of light speed for that kind of stuff. So a lot of different aspects of this story. So uh, wanted to get right into it. So, Chris, why don't you summarize briefly, you know, exactly what happened, what The Intercept uh, picked up and, and what uh, what the government is suggesting was happening during the election? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks, John, for having me. So as we know now, um, to sort of put this in, in, in a brief summary, there was a classified report. Uh, it was labeled top secret, which had to do with uh, phishing attempts aimed specifically at at least one voter registration software company. And then from that incident, uh, this is an NSA document, obviously, um, the hackers, a group that's believed to be Russian, also sent phishing emails with information about that vendor to a number of different state election officials. These are officials who 
are in charge of uh, polling places as mm-hmm. well as creation of machines. Right, this right. This report to the intercept, and now we understand that uh, the leaker, the individual who gave this to them, is this contractor, a 25-year-old by the name of Reality Winner, who was um, working for a contractor out of Georgia. Um, now, the details about how she was caught uh, what ultimately led to her swift arrest between the date that she sent these documents, which was the end of last month, and the announcement, which was just two days ago, is, is less clear. But it's important to note that the this NSA report does not mention that voter systems were hacked, that voting machines were hacked. It simply notes that a large-scale phishing operation occurred aimed at software vendors, and election officials, but the results of that phishing operation are not clear at this time. Right, and I think you know that kind of brings up an interesting point in a, in a theory I had looking at, at the data about that. The timing of those attacks was pretty late in the election cycle. So, I mean, what are you going to do with voter registration, you know, a week out from That's an election, right? right? Uh, that it shows to me that they're learning, right, and they're actively trying to get more information for next time. Because, you know, when you're talking about voter registration, some of these services in the lead up to an election, I mean, not only is there a time constraint in terms of of when uh, making actual attacks is is useful, but election officials are less likely to open up data and and uh, be subject to phishing attacks if it's not kind of an appropriate time period. So, I mean, they could launch those kind of attacks now. But election officials, who are usually county clerks, though not exclusively, you know, have a lot of other responsibilities. And there's no elections going on right now except, um, you know, some special elections here or there. So uh, the thing that I've been telling people is, you know, one, it's captured the imagination of a lot of people uh, and not just Russia. uh, But, you know, there is a lot of on the job training going on of trying to get better uh, at some of this stuff. Right. And I think you bring up a good point, which is. A big reason for why this story played out so heavily in the media was because of what it could mean, not what it said. Right. Um, and that's important. We really just don't know at this point, based on the evidence that's available, how damaging or to what degree of access the hackers had against these different U.S. election officials. Uh, to me, the scary thing is it says that they're, they're coming back. You know, they're, they're going to want to play in 2018. They're going to want to play in 2020. Um, and I don't know your opinion, right? Our response strategy of, the, of how to deal with this is there's no good option. You know, how do you tell Russia to, to stop doing this? I mean, you can't really retaliate in kind. You know, if there's somebody in the intelligence community who can manipulate Russia's election so Vladimir Putin loses, give that guy all the money, right? Give him a huge raise. Give him an office staff, right? All the money needs to go to that guy and just let him do whatever he wants. I think that's right. I mean... The asymmetric threat that that the U.S. faces from Russia right now is, is truly a new thing. And, and what you're mentioning when you say that they're going to come back in 2018, 2020, uh, James Comey, obviously, before he left the FBI, made that comment in an open hearing. And then later, I believe, just a few weeks later, uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, the NSA director, made the same comment that um, Russian hackers will, in fact, try to disrupt U.S. elections in 2018 and in 2020. So given those two comments and, and the similar language, I think it's fair to say that the intelligence community probably has some insight 
into continued efforts by some of these Russian hackers to mm. influence uh, a future processes. So it's something to keep an eye on, and there's really not a clear strategy that I've seen from the states, from the governor's associations, mm. in terms of what's, what's going to be done here just over the next year as we get ready for the 2018 election. No, no, that's definitely uh, definitely the case. So I wanted to go back into, you know, some of the interesting uh, details. I mean, you know, first, right, alleged leaker, you know, reality winner. You know, she's under indictment but hasn't been convicted uh, and entitled to due process and all of that. But how The Intercept handled this information uh, and some of the computer clues, I think, that, that could have been used to identify her, I think, are interesting. What can you tell us about that? There has been a, a decent bit of reporting over the last two days, really, looking at a technique that different intelligence agencies use uh, of watermarking documents. So when a, when a document mm -hmm. is watermarked, it essentially has a hidden sign on it, which will identify it uh, when it's being printed out or when it's being shared in terms of where it's coming from. Documents can be watermarked to show how they're being shared, who's mm -hmm. sharing them. It's a way of keeping tabs on the documents. One of the techniques that that may have been used in this, so there's not sufficient evidence, is that the document that Reality Winner shared with the Intercept, which we know was printed out, had a watermark, and mm -hmm. that's how the NSA knew that she shared it. Right, right. No, and I, th I, I certainly think, yeah, some of that's interesting. I know people found the serial number of the printer. Uh, there was a unique yep. fold, but, I mean, the surprising thing to me is that you're able to print this stuff in the first place, right? I mean, uh, the intelligence community doesn't like having uncontrolled documents running around, which is what a printout is. You can fold it in your pocket and take it out of the building. Uh, so there's strong logs of that. So it was a very kind of dumb mistake on her part, allegedly dumb mistake on her part. Uh, but certainly, you know, the Guardian did itself no favors. I mean, they printed the document online as it was, and we were able to look at the watermarks and tell you what printer ID it was uh, and model. I think it's also important to note that this is not the only case in recent history where an individual with a top-level clearance has walked out of a building with sensitive documents. Yeah, um, I, yeah. So we're coming at the end of our segment. Uh, thank you for being with us, Chris Bing, uh, cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. Stay tuned. We will be right back after this brief break. You are listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanek will be right back. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Some other interesting news in the national security realm that happened this week. Uh, reporting uh, that was released uh, about new malware called Crash Override. What this was... Uh, what this software does uh, basically it's a, a malicious platform designed to attack and compromise power grids it has been used uh, reportedly used twice uh, in both cases attributed to the russian government uh, but used in 
Ukraine. So uh, twice in the past couple of years, uh, those power grids were infiltrated with a software uh, that was used what we call flicking the lights. In essence, uh, basically caused a, a critical failure of their power grid and the lights came back on. So no long-term damage. It wasn't, you know, uh, power outages uh, for weeks and weeks. Now, but certainly a significant event. Certainly the Ukrainian government was somewhat less than pleased at the event. Uh, but now finally we're getting some report because those uh, those attacks happened months and in one case over a year ago uh, and the second uh, just uh, several months ago. So now uh, our uh, government is uh, releasing some data about that. And calling this uh, this malware crash override. So a lot of good reporting about that. But some interesting aspects of it, right, uh, in terms of how it operates. Uh, it's very modular in, in the sense of it was designed to be kind of a framework. Uh, what most people don't realize when we say the power grid, you know, most people think it's just this monolithic thing. Uh, the reality is there's lots of different components. Uh, lots of countries and areas of the country use different vendors for different pieces of things. So you couldn't create just one piece of software to basically shut down the power grid. You would need to create software that is flexible enough to load in modules for this given, uh, you know, uh, uh, this given component of a power system or uh, this transformer or so on and so forth. So you need to be very flexible. And this was designed very intelligently with that in mind. So somebody spent the time to think, you know what, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this for real. You know, we need something that can be flexible. We can load in modules as we see, okay, we get into this power company, they're using uh, this Siemens device, or uh, here they're using something from, I don't know, Honeywell. Uh, so we'll load in these modules uh, so that they can continue whatever operations they plan to do. One very concerning piece of this, right, is it, it has wiper functionality. In essence, you know, what the wiper is, is basically it just erases the hard drive and torches the system that it's loaded on. So uh, the reason that this is concerning is that often when you're dealing with criminal threats, right, you can use a firewall to block outbound traffic. You can disrupt the communication between bad guy and your network. Uh, uh, and that's often what we'll do in some cases, or and ultimately in many cases, to expel criminals out of a network, uh, is that we figure out how they communicate, we detect it, then we shut it all down in one, uh, what we call an expulsion event. In this case, they have software that they could load in that if you tried to expel them, it would notice it. Hey, I can't talk to my owners anymore, so I'm just going to start erasing all of the computers that these industrial systems rely on so you can end up creating uh, your own outage, right? If you try to kick them off your network, they'll just destroy the computers behind them. Those computers are necessary for the underlying equipment to run. If that fails, then you have not just you know power outage it could be water systems sewage treatments uh, any kind of industrial control system so uh, very concerning that that somebody spent a lot of time a lot of effort and a lot of engineering to get all the pieces of this uh, done uh, correctly and have operationalized it at least twice to our knowledge uh, against uh, an adversarial country. So certainly uh, I think we'll be hearing a lot more of this. I know that uh, a lot of uh, interview requests and conversations I have, a lot of people are focused on power grid uh, because it can be a very scary thing. You know, imagine what would, you know, days 
here in the United States and the developed world would look like without electricity, uh, especially in, say, the dead of winter, when you can measure the impact of that kind of an event in lives lost based on uh, people freezing to death. So uh, certainly uh, some things to be concerned about there, uh, and certainly we're going to track news as that developed. Now, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. Another story that came out this week also in national security news. The government of North Korea has been active in hacking since 2009 against targets the United States and elsewhere. Uh, our government, or the United States government anyway, uh, released a very detailed report uh, about what they've been up to uh, for a long time. It's a relatively unprecedented thing uh, for our government to specifically point the finger at another one saying you're responsible for all of these hacking attempts. But I don't think I've recalled any time where they said, you know what, here's an eight-year-long history of what these people have been up to, what they've been compromising, how they've been doing it, and what are they trying to get out of it. So it was very interesting to see the report, and I know one of the big questions that, that I get is, why release it now? The timing is kind of peculiar. It's a very kind of unprecedented move. Exactly what is behind the Department of Homeland Security releasing this report? And I think it's several things, right? The first is we know that North Korea has been active uh, in hacking targets in the United States. They're very publicly blamed for the hacking of Sony Pictures, the movie, th movie studio, over uh, a movie that was critical of North Korea uh, a couple years ago. So we know they're active in it. But this goes back to, in part, WannaCry, that global ransomware epidemic that shut down the United Kingdom's National Health Service. Uh, there is a school of thought that North Korea was responsible for it. Uh, I have some sympath sympathies to that point of view. Uh, and it could be, you know what, they took this unprecedented step, so we're going to release all the data we have. I think another piece of it is that it's an intelligence gathering expedition. The United States is in the peculiar spot uh, compared to other nations is that most of what we call critical infrastructure isn't in the hands of the federal government, uh, the power grid. All of our, for the most part, I shouldn't say it, not all, there are some exceptions. Most of our power companies are private companies. Uh, you know, we have 17 different critical infrastructures. Our financial system, aside of the Federal Reserve, everything else is almost entirely in private hands. Imagine life without our financial system. Uh, communications, the Internet, right? Our Internet access, all in private hands. Uh, the government has very little to do with it. So uh, our government is in the interesting position when they want to gather intelligence about what people are doing in cyberspace. They actually have to come to the private sector uh, to figure out our data, get our logs, uh, look at our firewall, so on and so forth. That's certainly uh, a part of it also. I think the uh, last aspect of this. Uh, is that they're expecting some impending activity in North Korea. They've been upping their tempo in recent uh, months uh, in terms of cybersecurity attacks as tensions escalate in the region. And certainly we see geopolitical uh, pressures also lead to uh, increased cybersecurity attacks. So I certainly think it's a precursor to try to preemptively disrupt what North Korea may be trying to do here in the coming weeks and coming months. But we'll certainly pay attention and let you know what you need to know uh, about North Korean 
hacking as that story develops. See our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at CyberSecRadio. Feel free to email the show, johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. As always, there's great cybersecurity news with our digital partner, cyberscoop.com. Go ahead, surf on over there, see what some of the good reporting they've got going on, uh, and keep apprised uh, of other events as they develop. And always thanks to our stations out there, AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. Feel free to catch us whatever podcasting software you like, Cybersecurity Today Radio. Stay tuned for more. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambino. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambadek will be right back. Bambanek's back with the latest on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. This week, we are broadcasting out of London. I'm here on business uh, uh, talking about election hacking uh, at a conference. Uh, but that does bring us to some uh, big events happening here in the UK. Uh, there is a snap election that has happened this week. So time will tell uh, the fallout that's going on from that. But the current prime minister of the UK uh, wants to take a stronger stand on cybersecurity, follow Europe's lead. Uh, uh, so joining us uh, to talk about that is Andre Walker from the New York Observer. He is a correspondent here in London. Uh, thank you for joining us today. No problem. Great to be on the show. Thank you. So let's break it down. Uh, you know, exactly what is Prime Minister Theresa May uh, uh, wanting to do? What does she mean by follow Europe's lead on uh, cybersecurity? Well, I think, I think there's, a, there's a big problem here. And it's essentially that for many years, the British security services have wanted to get access to apps like WhatsApp. And you know that there's been a big argument between you know, these big American companies mm-hmm. on encrypted communications methods and uh, governments that want access to them. Now, essentially, um, this election, one of the things that's dominating it in the, past, in the last few days of it is the, uh, the, the terrorist attacks that have taken place. Um, specifically the Ariana Grande bomb attack in mm-hmm. at the Manchester Arena and, of course, the knife attack around Borough Market. Now, I think there's one, one thing that we need to be really clear on here, that if you look at the attack on Borough Market as an obvious example, one of the guys who did it was on a TV show for Channel 4 called The Jihadi Next Door. Now, mm-hmm. you know, he was nonetheless not being actively monitored. So he was on a watch list, of course, but he wasn't being actively monitored. And you just wonder whether the issue here is that there isn't enough resources for the security services, or is the issue that actually we need to be able to hack into people's communications? Yeah, and that's kind of the, the perspective I take, right? Obviously, being a visitor here, you know, I don't have great in-depth 
local understanding. I don't necessarily have skin in the game, but you know, I, I want. I uh, I believe there was reporting that one of these people was arrested a couple years ago, let go. There was all the telltale signs of you know at least some of these people you should have had your eye on anyway. So if yeah. you weren't able to use your existing resources and keep an eye on them. What is going to make you think that, you know, creating backdoors in the Facebook encrypted chats is going to make it any better? Well, I think what I might do now is kind of give you the British government's argument, mm-hmm. what the real argument that they're making. The real argument is this. Look, last year, 50,000 British people downloaded the ISIS magazine. Now, that is a huge number. There are 23,000 people on the sort of jihadist watch list. Now, I think the argument is that it, co- it takes potentially dozens of people to actively follow one suspect. So obviously what always happens in all these cases, and the reason why these terrorists are always known to the police and the security services, quote unquote, is because um, essentially what they've tried to do is they've tried to work out which people are of the Islamists, which people are genuinely likely to commit an attack and which people are just dreaming of the day of doing it. And I think what the government is saying is, given that we could not possibly follow all 24,000 of them, we need tougher, we need more methods to monitor them. Now, of course, my argument is, as somebody who's on the right, is firstly, we've got to be very, very concerned about the number of people we're letting into the country. We've got to be very concerned about the background. And I know that's something that transcends from Britain and America, mm. and certainly I know the White House is very concerned about this issue. But equally, we need to start asking ourselves the following question. You know, why is it that somebody can come uh, as a refugee because they're a wanted terrorist in their own country, then four years later get British citizenship? No, no, I think you, you certainly make a good point there, right? You know, is, uh, you know, vetting some people, there's obvious concerns coming in and be surprised, uh, you know, when these kind of events happen. Um, and certainly, you know, there's, uh, you know, a lot of politics back and forth, uh, you know, in several countries uh, revolve around this. Well, I thought, well I, I thought one of the things that was, that was kind of quite shocking. I mean, I agreed with Ariana Grande in terms of having that concert in Manchester, because fundamentally the reason for blowing up her concert was because the Islamic State feels that, it, that concerts with young girls at is immoral so if they were mm. offended by 20,000 concerts they're going to be more offended by 50,000 oh, yeah. of course the proceeds of it went to the British Red Cross and what are the British Red Cross doing well essentially these people traffickers <laughs> in North Africa sail five miles off the coast and then you know the, the you know navies of European countries pick up the people and sail them the rest of the way and the, uh, helped by the British Red Cross so of course the irony is that if you bought a ticket to that concert you were helping to finance the, uh, the, uh, more, more of these refugees, of who, many of whom have very, very unpleasant views. And, and I just think that, that, that that is the fundamental problem. Now, in terms of people like WhatsApp, Facebook and others, I mean, I think they are right to kind of stand up to European governments because, you know, there is not a great tradition in Europe of free speech and, and freedom and democracy. Mm-hmm. There might be in the English-speaking world, but that's not the same thing. We often call them Western values. Well, not really Western values at all, are they? They're the values of the English-speaking world. And mm-hmm. so, so I, think, I think from our point of view in Britain, we need to be following America's lead much more in terms of trying to clamp down on the problem of bringing people to the country, but also remember those values of free speech and free association that have made us the countries that we are today. No, I, th- I certainly think that's true, and I think one of the downsides of talking about, you know, hey, we're going to go after these applications is, you know, one, you're letting ISIS and friends know what you're going after and you're interested in. They could 
create applications. They could, you know, find all sorts of offline un, un uh, surveillable stuff if you know their face, uh, you know, on Facebook and the coordinating. And I could see who they're talking to and create, you know, a heat map and basically map their entire yeah. social network. As as an intelligent professional, I would never shut down, you know, an area where the adversary communicates. I'd monitor the heck out of it. And if I've got to deal with nuances of encryption, I still get a whole lot of data besides that, uh, even with that problem. Well, yeah, and, and I think one of, the, one of the huge advantages that we've got, um, obviously, we, we are in the UK, we're an island, as, as you know, and that gives us the ability to kind of monitor coming, people coming in and out, which, which okay, you know, we don't do perfectly, but we do reasonably well. I think the other thing is that a lot of these extremists, the reason why they're on the watch list to start with is because, you know, again, you might get training in counter surveillance when you go to somewhere like Syria, but of course, you've already had to plan to go. And the, the, the nature of that means you have to have logged on to extremist websites for years and years and years, potentially starting as a fairly young teenager. Mm. So that's kind of how the list is, the, the, uh, the watch list is kind of created. And therefore, they, you know, they know who these people are, but it, it, it's not the issue of, you know, knowing who is an extremist and who is not an extremist. That is done. It's the issue of working out who is potentially dangerous and who is not potentially dangerous. And as I've said, I would suggest that nowadays... You know, you don't need a bomb to have a terrorist attack. You don't need a gun for a terrorist attack. All you need is a kitchen knife or a car. Therefore, there is no barrier to entry, if you like, for being a terrorist. So, so I think then what you've got to do is you've got to look at de-radicalization and you've got to look at not allowing radicals into the country. You know, the, the, the tech side, I think, is, is in many respects irrelevant. I think it's just it, what this is all about, really, as far as I can see, this is a way of justifying the continuation of this kind of liberal proposal to, to this liberal addiction to, um, to immigration from problem countries. And, you know, if you look at the photos of people coming to Europe, if they are so frightened of living in their own country, why is it only military-aged men that seem to turn up? Why do they leave their wives and children? So, of course, the reason they're coming to the country is for a better life, and, and I accept that the vast majority of them are not violent terrorists, but because there is a percentage that are, we need to err on the cautious side. And I think, I think far too often in America, you are dead wrong when you look at this White House, because, because I think this White House, uh, that you've got is, is genuinely committed to taking steps to deal with that. Now, are those steps perfect? Is, is it being challenged in the court? No, you know, they're not perfect. And yes, it is being challenged in the court. But I think this is the first White House that I can think of that has taken this issue seriously. And I think that what the Europeans are doing by, atta by attacking things like Facebook and WhatsApp is they are, they are focusing on an issue that is almost entirely irrelevant. No, I think you definitely make a point, right? It's focusing on all, all the wrong things. Coming to the end of our segment, so I uh, have to let you go. A lot of great information there. Uh, you've been listening to Andre Walker, New York Observer, uh, who's London, uh, their London correspondent. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Andre Walker, New York Observer. Uh, a lot of great content, uh, you know, that we've covered with our show with CyberScoop, uh, the NSA leaks, uh, the cybersecurity implications, the terrorist attacks in London. So a lot of information, hopefully, that you can use, protect yourself, your family uh, from online threats, be aware of what's going on in the world. If you want to connect with us, feel free to go to our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, or find us at Twitter at Facebook at CybersecRadio. 
brings us to the end of our show. Hope to catch you next week talking about cybersecurity issues, what you need to know, how to protect yourself and your family from online threats. You are listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanak. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.